Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past few days. And as we get into the questions today, as we do each week, those of you who are familiar with the Roundup know that we take our questions from our newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share, that comes out on Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern if you're subscribing to our newsletter. And I put the link to our new to our website uh, from uh, the smieconsulting.org slash subscribe and you'll be able to uh, enter in your information on the subscribe link and then add in, uh, you'll get that in that email every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, into your inbox uh, with the latest news on international ed and social media happenings. And from that newsletter each week, we put together uh, three themes we see developing and come up with the questions that we talk about uh, based on the news stories that have happened that week, and then put together uh, this half hour uh, in-depth look at how these questions and the answers to those questions can impact what we do in international education at our institutions. So as we do each week, I want to say a special shout out to those watching live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter, and then those of you who are catching uh, on repeat on either any of those channels or watch listening to our audio-only podcast version of the Roundup. So thanks so much for making us a part of your weekly international edification. So I've just gotten back from the API conference in Bangkok, Thailand last week, and I also had a trip to uh, Vietnam for UNLV and attending API for UNLV as well. And part of that trip involved a lot of uh, conversations about uh, <clears throat> preparations for students upon arrival. Uh, we had a great event that, um, at, that was sponsored by the U.S. Embassy in, in Thailand, uh, where we met with other uh, Thai university colleagues that were looking for partnerships. But in one of the sessions that we had, which I think was very valuable uh, in terms of helping to educate me, educate myself on what the kinds of issues that Thai students that might be coming to the United States are are facing. So we're having conversations with our, our peers, uh, other folks in international education responsible for partnerships and recruitment, and having the conversations about what, what are the kinds of questions. Uh, we had a group with activity where we had uh, questions that we had to answer, like what are some of the things that you want to include uh, to tell students before they go to study in another country. So this got me thinking, and an article from uh, Karen Fisher from The Chronicle uh, touched on this very topic, and that's the issue of pre-departure orientations. And the question is, do pre-departure orientations make a difference? And there are various versions of what a pre-departure orientation is, right? So we have those that are done by institutions uh, who have recruited students in a particular country, admitted them, issued them documents uh, and, uh, for them to travel, travel abroad to, uh, to get the visas first and then travel abroad to come to study on your campus. So that's one type of orientation where you're doing something for students before they arrive. And even before the pandemic, many universities were doing uh, either a series of webinars over the course of the summer months, touching on different topics uh, that uh, related to their arrival, what they needed to do to prepare academically, getting the records together, what to pack, uh, immunizations, all the different things they need to bring with them, uh, those types of uh, pre-departure questions. And then there's... Um, 
there's uh, those institutions that have created courses. And Karen uh, Fisher in her article mentions in particular uh, a pre-departure course uh, from Syracuse University called Catapult, an online course that students take. Uh, and uh, she references one student who's now in her middle into her second semester of her junior year who still remembers that course and refers back to it and about how well that course helped prepare her for uh, the, the very, very significant differences she was going to experience once she got to campus. And many colleges do these courses. Uh, now, the question is, do, the question is, we're asking, do pre-departure orientations make a difference? Uh, and the question is, it depends, as it does with almost everything else about U.S. higher education. Depends on the university, depends on the course, depends on the content, depends on when it's offered, how, uh, how it's delivered, uh, and the results and follow-up that's done by institutions to make sure that that content is understood and hopefully refined and made more, uh, more clear for future students. So that, those, that's one type of orientation, pre-departure orientation that happens. Uh, what uh, we've done at UNLV for the past couple of years is we've had an online course uh, that we've created. And for those students who we've issued I-20s to uh, back in the uh, beginning of April, May, up through, up through middle of May, middle end of May, we, uh, that we've sent those I-20s to and that they've confirmed that they're planning to attend, we'll send this, uh, this link to this course to them. And then they follow through the different modules and then get all the information they need about registration, about what to bring, about health insurance, about academic records, again, academic dishonesty and those kind of other concepts that we talk about during orientation once they arrive. But again, it's, it's important when we're dealing with international students that are, that, who the basic rule of thumb you have to follow is they don't know what they don't know. And it's up, incumbent upon us as institutions to explain to every student who's coming in what they need to prepare for <clears throat> and what they need to bring with them and all the, what, the, what life will be like for them in the college classroom. And it's, it shouldn't just be once they arrive. We should be doing this before they arrive. And then hopefully by, when they get to campus, you reinforce those key messages uh, through the orientation program, the in-person, on-campus orientation. So... <clears throat> Obviously, for U.S. students who are coming to uh, U.S. colleges uh, during the summer months, most colleges will have orientations throughout the summer that are on campus, where students actually come to campus. They f find out where they're going to be living. They meet their roommate. They register for classes. They meet their advisors. They get the whole works that they would normally get during orientation. They get that early. Uh, and that's an advantage. That's, that's what a lot of institutions have done to prevent what they've called uh, summer melt over the, over the summer months, to uh, prevent those that have committed in May, on by, by May 1st, the old traditional uh, deposit date, National Decision Day, uh, to uh, prevent them from, uh, from leaving, keeping them engaged throughout that summer time when they could be potentially uh, poached by other institutions or they make decisions, students make decisions or families make decisions to go elsewhere. So the pre-departure orientation piece is, I think, uh, if done well, can really make the difference in helping that incoming student adjust to their new life and the expectations of that new life uh, and helping them to mentally and psychologically and socially prepare for what it's going to be like for them. So absolutely, they can make a difference. They can make a difference. Do they? Again, that's the it depends argument. And the, uh, Karen's article makes, makes clear a lot of the kinds of things that we, we talked about 
when I, uh, we were having our, our workshop with these Thai universities, uh, we uh, I and asking several of them about wh what they do in uh, pr in terms of a pre-departure orientation for their students. It seemed to be fairly minimal uh, from the four or five that I had at my table uh, that were at, that were answering what they're what they're doing for students, and a lot of it was pro forma kind of. Uh, uh, who you need to check in with, which obviously makes a lot of sense, and yes, you need to know who those people are. But it was uh, an institution that, that was doing this for their students that were going abroad. So that's a very, that's a different kind of pre-departure orientation, and that's more for study abroad students that might be leaving your school to go overseas. So there's a lot of different ways you, when we talk about pre-departure, we wanna make sure we're defining our terms. But we talked about uh, when, if they were sending their students to us, these are the, ki these, these are the kind of things we would hope they would, they, would, they would cover to help prepare them for what we talk about. And oftentimes those, those pre-departures can be done in conjunction with uh, host uh, the, ho the the receiving institution, uh, and oftentimes uh, we we see this happening with our colleagues at Education USA. Uh, they um, they do uh, pre-departure orientations as a regular part of their programming for the students that they're advising, and students that come in at different points during the college admission cycle, either undergraduate or graduate. Uh, they oftentimes are looking for those opportunities to connect with students from their own country that are going to the U.S. before they leave. And um, at USA orientations are pre-departure orientations are a great way for to supplement what you are already doing. <clears throat> as an institution. Because as much as we hope to cover all the different facets of transitioning from uh, overseas to the United States as an incoming university student, uh, as much as we try and cover everything, there's no way we can cover it all. And when I say cover it all, part of, an important piece of that transition for students is their cultural transition. Uh, what's going to be so dramatically different uh, for them as a student from X country going to the United States? So and that's where our colleagues at Education USA do an absolutely amazing job, and they have uh, returning advisees that have been in, are, are in the United States talking about their experiences, what some of the biggest challenges they had in their first semester about life on campus, and uh, what they forgot to bring that they should have brought, uh, what they uh, what they brought that they didn't need, uh, the kinds of people that they needed to meet. And and they should have met that they didn't. So kind of giving you the, their lessons learned from their experiences. So those returning student experiences are, fa are, are absolutely fantastic to help prepare those students about to engage on that, on that journey to the U.S. to go through immigration and customs, to know what to expect when they meet a, a CBP officer and present their passport and I-20s and other documents. Those are the kinds of things that uh, any additional advance notice or advanced information that we can provide to incoming students can help prepare them uh, mentally, physically, socially, culturally for what they're about to experience uh, is, is for the best. And that's why I think pre-departure orientations can be so, so vital to what, um, what, what we expect from them once they arrive. Because if we haven't done all that preparatory work, if they didn't go to an EdUSA uh, orientation, if you didn't advise your admitted students to go to EdUSA uh, orientations to get at least something, if you weren't, if they weren't going to be doing your uh, pre-departure, if you didn't have anything, at least get them to go to an EdUSA one. But if 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 you don't do any of that pre-prep work, and you come that you get them to campus, and all of a sudden you expect them to absorb everything you throw at them in a 48-hour period, uh, and remember it. 
and apply it successfully when they're jet lagged, uh, when they're learning a new, uh, they're learning uh, a second, third, fourth, or fifth language in English in the United States. They're learning campus slang. They're trying to find their way around. They're just running on adrenaline when they get off the plane and they get to campus. So they might absorb only 10% of what they're hearing during orientation. So if that, if that's the only time that they're hearing that information, but if you've laid the foundation properly over the summer months and have reinforced those messages repeatedly uh, during your messaging to them throughout that summer period, then they get to campus with at least a, uh, an idea of what to expect. And whether they absorbed it all beforehand or believed it all, that's another question entirely, but uh, that's not took, uh, completely out of your control, but at least you've made the effort and then you can rely on that. Obviously, you want to do follow-ups and, and find out what could we have done better in the messaging beforehand. Uh, was it not at the right time or was it too much or did it not make sense or was the format wrong, whatever. You need to do the follow-up, of course. But if you're not already making that effort to, to connect with them before they arrive, those are missed opportunities to make sure that you're preparing your students, incoming students, your newest students, from the most, potentially some of your most vulnerable students for success if you do it right. Uh, and that uh, requires a lot of effort. And it's not an overnight success thing. It's something that requires some serious planning, some little trial and, effort, trial and error. But if you're not making the effort, then it's a missed opportunity and one that can backfire on you if that student comes and isn't prepared and doesn't absorb things during orientation and then runs into trouble right away. So there's a whole range of issues you could talk about uh, and should talk about in your pre-departure to help, again, minimize that impact of concentrating so much information into that orientation program once they first arrive on campus. Because we all know how, how frustrating that can be uh, when we you have a sea of uh, students in, a, in an auditorium that you're trying to con uh, convey the importance of immigration regulations or health insurance policies or academic integrity issues. These are things that if it's the first time they're hearing that and that's the most important thing that they need to need to absorb and take on board, if their eyes are glazed over or they're dozing off because they're jet lagged, uh, th those are opportunities. If that's the only time they're hearing it, then something's been missed along the way. Uh, and that's that's up to up to you as individual universities uh, and international offices to make sure and whether you're all in one office for international where you have everything from recruitment admissions orientation advising programming all the way through to alumni status if if you're in that office then there should be no excuses for lack of communication uh, but bet uh, to your prospective students throughout that journey a most important journey before they arrive on campus if you're in segmented offices uh, on campus that uh, separate grad and undergrad admissions offices, separate international student orientation office and programming office and services office, then there needs to be obviously communication between the different uh, units that are involved, co co coordination on uh, messaging and who's sending what and when the handoff occurs and how uh, different offices can reinforce the messages that they should and can and should be hearing throughout those uh, critical summer months before they arrive. So absolutely, pre-departure orientations make a difference if they're done right. Let's move on to our second question of the day. And this is one we've seen developing for uh, several years, but we were talking about it in the context of uh, how important are international students in our different countries to meeting labor market needs. Now, I'm going to be sharing uh, three different articles uh, from Canada's perspective, from Germany and from New Zealand, uh, sharing how they are responding to the needs of um, their labor market and 
making sure international students are a part of that journey or part of the part of the uh, solution to curing labor market woes. Uh, the three articles that we're sharing first uh, from uh, Canada, uh, Canadian, excuse me, is first from uh, Canadian Immigration Council uh, News, and they uh, uh, they make clear that uh, it's an article about the PGWP postgraduate work permits. So at, at how. Uh, many, uh, what percentage of students, international students studying in Canada, uh, are using the, their postgraduate work permission or work, work permits to extend their stay in Canada in order to work and build a life in the country. So this article is uh, from uh, March 7th, uh, about a week, week and a bit ago, and uh, it contains a lot of um, stats from 2022 that captures data up through 2018. So this is pre-pandemic data, but which is only going to accelerate, I think, in terms of the numbers that we're going to see. Uh, that in 20, 2008, the cohort uh, that graduated in 2008, 29% uh, of graduates in that year held a PGWP postgraduate work permit five years later. Now, fast forward uh, 2009, 5% more, so 34%. Now, by 2013, uh, five years on, 52% of graduating graduates obtained a PGP five years later. So that is uh, showing a dramatic growth in terms of the uh, number of students, percentage of students that are graduating with uh, degrees in Canada going on for, uh, for, for work permission. And that shows uh, that's a, over uh, between 2008 and 2018, a 528% increase in the total number of PGWP holders from 10,300 to 64,700. Now keep in mind, um, for comparison purposes, in the United States, uh, our, our, our postgraduate, our equivalent PGWP is, uh, is, well, the first part of that that's tied to their student status is OPT, either one to three years of work permission. So we don't really have an equivalent timeline that we can look at. We know how many students we have on OPT every year. And generally, that's been 100,000, 200,000 uh, in that range uh, that are, I've been in the United States by when we look at students by level. Now, in terms of, um, so we have a number of that first one to three years uh, as a percentage of students. So uh, generally, it looks like could be of, of the total, you might have 10 to 20 percent of, uh, of, of, well, that's a total student. So we don't really have an accurate number of five years later uh, data that we can look at. So we don't really have apples to apples with comparison for Canada. But let's just look at what is the next step after OPT, and that is uh, employment visas like an H-1B. Uh, so that is the most common route. And every year H-1Bs are given out. There's about 64,000 that are uh, standard H-1Bs, there's 20,000 additional for those with master's degrees. Uh, so that is not all students. There's a good percentage of them that are, but not all of them. So it's, a little, again, not quite apples and apples. But what is clear in Canada, uh, they which now has over 807,000 international students currently enrolled in the country this year, or as of, yeah, as of this beginning of this year, that the reason for the rising prevalence of the PGWP, according to this article, is that 
uh, it allows international student graduates to make and earn a living in Canada, and they're seen as a valuable tool for obtaining permanent residency in the country. So it's a, a really a means to an end for those that want to stay. Uh, so we're seeing uh, the PGP in Canada being a real uh, important pathway, and they're saying uh, in the future they're expecting, I think it was three quarters of all PGP, PGWP uh, students uh, to be moving to permanent residency in the coming coming five years. So that number is only going to increase in the in the next next five-year cycle. So uh, the length of the PGP uh, depends on the length of their post-secondary program from which the permanent applicant, uh, applicant graduated. Might be one year if it's at a two or three-year vocational program, might be th two or three years, uh, depending on, again, the length of their program. In fact, according to Statistics Canada, and last bit on this one, almost three-quarters of all PGWP holders became permanent residents within five years of having obtained their PGWP. So uh, that's a significant positive trend for those that are looking at that um, now for, uh, for, for, for Canadian entry. Now we look at another, another case in Germany. Uh, in Germany, those who aren't familiar, uh, Germany's uh, equivalent, it's called German Academic Exchange Service or DAD, D-A-A-D. Uh, they are kind of the equivalent of uh, IIE in the United States in terms of uh, they're more more kind of a non-governmental body, but they, they, they fund a lot of uh, scholarships for uh, German students to go abroad, to receive uh, over international students in Germany. So they are, are kind of a main player in that respect. They are saying that uh, they need to re retain more international students as part of a larger overall strategy to uh, fill gaps in the labor market. Uh, so, and uh, using for, in, including, in order to do that, they want to, uh, they want to expand and improve student services, include, including tra career transition supports and German language training, in order to reduce the dropout level and boost retention of skilled graduates. So, uh, and that, uh, a position paper from Dodd is calling for a multi-part strategy with concrete actions from government, academia, and industry in order to boost student recruitment and retention of skilled graduates. So, uh, again, with the goal of doubling the cohort of retained graduates to roughly 50,000 per year who stay on for work and uh, to fill, uh, fill, uh, fill, fill jobs in the economy. So uh, they are, have been seeing uh, an increasing gap in skilled workers in the labor market in Germany for several years. And that um, uh, Germany has, has certainly been an incre uh, increasingly popular destination for, for refugees and other migrants to come to uh, because of their social, social uh, very strong social fabric and welcoming environment for refugees and immigrants. Uh, that at the same time, they uh, also need to fill skilled labor gaps that may be missing in other parts of the, of the economy. So Germany's doing it as well. And then New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand, uh, there was a recent uh, OECD report that looked at uh, the attractiveness of certain markets for, for over, over three main categories. Uh, highly qualified potential migrants, uh, startup founders, and international students. And top of the list for highly qualified potential migrants is New Zealand. Uh, and as a, as a uh, direct desire to attract, um, to be a country that's considered one of the 
the safest and best quality of life in the world, uh, but also provides uh, high, highly or highly skilled migrants opportunity for for, for residency eventually. Uh, for Canada is seen as a top destination for startup founders, according to this OECD data. Uh, the UK is ranked seventh in that uh, attractiveness for highly qualified potential migrants. Um, the uh, I think that's uh, that's they not featured in the top ten prior to 2019. Uh, so that that's interesting that uh, the UK is up in that list. But um, for startup founders, Canada uh, again because of what we were just talking about earlier, they've they've seen a lot of success recently. And then, thankfully, for, uh, for the, from a U.S. perspective, according to the OECD, OECD data, you see uh, the U.S. being the top destination for international students uh, as the most uh, attractiveness chart, according to this OECD data. So interesting to read that and see where that's coming from uh, to, for, on the uh, issues of, of uh, international students being seen as a very important piece of the um, of the of the overall labor market uh, in certain countries that and the countries are doing more to make sure that those that they are bringing on student visas not only increases as to hopefully then increase the number that want to stay when they finish. So uh, really encouraged to see that coming out of um, of those three countries: Germany, uh, New Zealand, and and Canada in terms of their effectiveness and their desire to help uh, connect the dots really on meeting labor market needs and international students. In the U.S., we don't have that clear pathway. We have a very dysfunctional uh, immigration system in the United States that's been clear for decades. Uh, nothing's really been done substantially to change immigration law in the U.S. since the 80s. Uh, and that's, uh, there's been long overdue uh, changes needed in our field. In my entire professional career, there haven't been substantial changes to our immigration system, not just for students, but for, for overall to streamline processes and to make uh, pathways clearer and to provide greater range of options for those that wish to, to emigrate here uh, for study, work, or other, other, other means or other, uh, other ways. So uh, it's interesting to, to see as we, as we progress uh, through this, uh, through this uh, next step uh, in, in understanding the wider world we live in and how different countries, uh, economic situations, labor market circumstances are directly influencing national policy and actually having a national policy that's connected, international education policy that's connected to a labor force policy uh, and economic policy in that country. So uh, that's, it's very interesting to see what's going on in other, other countries. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of us in the U.S. who've been in the industry more than a minute uh, look on with uh, some degree of envy uh, for what other countries are able to do and how quickly they're able to move. Another story we're, we're featuring this next week in, uh, in our newsletter is how um, Canada is adding uh, the, the length of time students can work. Uh, Australia has been doing similar things as well uh, after they're done with their studies. So uh, we'll see where it progresses to next, but we have a lot of, um, a lot of options here, uh, or examples, I should say, of how other countries are really um, making the effort to, to change the way their economies are set up, their immigration systems are set up to use uh, and allow for uh, international students to stay and work. So uh, we'll certainly keep our eyes posted on that. 
Now, uh, last question of the day is a little bit of a funny one. Uh, there's a couple of a uh, couple of stories wrapped around this, uh, and one of which is, what is your what's your favorite international travel story? Uh, there's some travel uh, always good to keep in up to date with visa uh, re requirements in different countries, and we had two uh, two notices this week. One from uh, China that has uh, been seen as a, a very welcome one for those that look to go recruit in China. Uh, that now they've reinstated any tenure. Uh, multi-entry visas uh, for those that were looking to go to China to recruit students. Uh, that's, uh, so that's encouraging for those who are looking to get back in. They have been suspended during COVID, so now they're starting to issue them again or recognize them if they were already granted. And then we have on the other side, uh, Brazil, uh, since uh, 2018 uh, they were, and 2019, they were seeing declining pre-COVID, seeing declining numbers of visitors uh, from uh, key Western nations, Canada, U.S., Australia, uh, U.K., I think, were, were included in that mix, and that they removed the visa requirements. So from 2018 or 19, there wasn't a visa requirement to enter uh, Brazil, and they were hoping that would boost tourist numbers. But then again, the pandemic hit, and they didn't see an increase in tourist numbers. Uh, they've now made the decision to reinstate uh, visa requirements. Uh, starting, I think, later this summer. So uh, those travel stories, or uh, travel uh, requirements, are important to keep your eyes on. And there's a couple, th couple of funny things here. Not funny. One is uh, inf informational, and probably will have some humor in it. Uh, the Pi News, uh, for those who who've, uh, who follow that, uh, they have uh, started a new. Um, a new podcast, uh, Depart Tales from the Departure Lounge, uh, that initially started with some uh, five first five episodes were uh, for UK-based folks and their travel travel stories, their favorite travel stories, and uh, what they what they forgot to pack, favorite books they like to bring when they travel, all those kind of things. Uh, so that, I definitely recommend that. Call again, called Tales from the Departure Lounge, if you're looking for another podcast to to wrap your head around uh, that will have some funny travel stories, I'm sure. But uh, one I'll have to share personally, and I'll sign off with this one today. Uh, I just, as I, as I mentioned at the top, I just got back from a trip to Vietnam and Thailand. I'd been to Vietnam six years ago, seven years ago now, and uh, one of my last trips for a previous institution. And uh, I didn't need a visa to get into Vietnam, I, I didn't think at the time. Uh, but I get to the airport. Uh, and I was using that same logic. I get to the airport and uh, check, trying to check in at the counter, and uh, ticket counter uh, person asked me if where if I where my visa is for Vietnam, and I said, "Oh, I didn't need one uh, last time I was there. Why do I need one now?" Uh, she said, "Well, maybe COVID ha happened." Uh, so I pick it, pull up my phone, and I see, "Oh my goodness, I need a visa for entering into Vietnam." Granted, my flight's leaving in two hours. I, so I look at look at, look and there's two options. There's a visa on arrival, but you have to do it at least four days in advance, so that's out. And another one was e-visa. So it's about nine o'clock in the morning uh, when I get to the airport in Detroit, getting ready for my flight, and uh, I, I I find a number to call, and it's a number in Vietnam. So I go I, I go, go sit down for a minute, gather myself, uh, pray someone answers the phone. Someone answered the phone. It's after 10 o'clock at night in Vietnam, and uh, I said I'm at the airport now. I am leaving in two, my flight leaves in two hours, and I don't have a visa. I've done the application for an e-visa. I filled it out while I was before I called, and he he said yeah okay I see the see see it's come in. But the thing is he answered the phone at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I was like oh my gosh I'm so lucky. I, I, so 
oh my God, God is looking out for me today. So uh, I, 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 he said, uh, I, I said, I need to leave in two hours. I get on a plane in two hours to come to you in Vietnam. Uh, is it possible to get any visa in that time? And he said, uh, give me 10 minutes and I will uh, email you back a uh, decision. And he'd found my application, so that was good uh, that I'd filed, uh, paid, the, paid the application through, through, through PayPal and got that done. And then uh, get uh, then he emails back within ten minutes and he says yes we can do it and I'm going oh thank you Lord <laughs> so uh, he says oh, just fill out this uh, expedite link uh, you got to pay pay a, pay an additional fee to expedite and by this time I'm going I will do it no matter what uh, it's it's so important I need to need to be in Vietnam in less than 24 hours so I I paid the fee. And then within five more minutes, he emailed me an, uh, a visa letter that I could present to the ticket counter to get my uh, get my uh, get my bags up, checked and got to the got to the ticket uh, to the gate and was able to get on the plane. So long story short, I'm rusty. I hadn't been <laughs> hadn't gone anywhere that required a visa in a while. So uh, I, I'm very very blessed that I was able to get on that plane and I had someone uh, uh, in Vietnam that picked up a phone at 10 o'clock at night there. But uh, yeah, that's uh, some, there's a lot more funny stories down the road and uh, hopefully get a chance to share some of those with you in person down the road. But uh, that's all we have for you this week on the Midweek Roundup. But uh, wish you the very best and uh, make sure your passports are up to date and that uh, you are all you have all the visas you need for your next trip before you go. Until next time, have a great day. Cheers.